Hello, everyone. Welcome to Radio Cachimbona, a podcast hosted by me, Yvette, a Salvatorian Cachimbona growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast that follows me as I navigate litigating civil rights cases focused on immigration detention conditions in Southern Arizona. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadorian immigrants, I prioritize uplifting the voices of Central Americans. Thanks so much for joining me today. I interviewed Ana and Gisela, two family law, two Latina family law attorneys who came on the podcast to talk about their practice as well as the very serious issue of uptick in domestic violence as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the worldwide shelter-in-place and stay-at-home orders. We talk about the various flaws that exist for a person who's trying to find remedies against domestic violence within the current legal system, and I hope you all enjoy. If you like what I do and want to support my work, you can become a Patreon. For $5 a month, you will get two ex- access to two exclusive lit reviews, which are special segments that I do where I break down books like most recently, El País Bajo Mi Piel by Gioconda Belli, a memoir of the Nicaraguan revolutionaries time being a clandestine spy for the Sandinista movement and overtaking the Somoza dictatorship of Nicaragua. The Lit Review prioritizes analyzing the readings of Central American authors, and it's it's a real fun and intellectual conversation, so I think you'll all find it engaging. Also, becoming a patron is not only a great way for y'all to get more access during quarantine, but also really helps me keep this work sustainable and always improve the quality of the podcast, which is something that I'm always thinking about. You can also support Radio Cachimbona by following at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And another way to support if you don't have money, which is still really, really valuable, is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us gain new listeners and gain more visibility in general. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy. Excited to have Anna and Gisela, two Central American lawyers who practice family law, here today to talk about their journeys to becoming Latinas, their family law practice, what drew them to it, and specifically we're going to be talking about a very timely topic right now, which is the increase in domestic violence that that we've seen as a result of COVID-19 and wanted to talk about how that has influenced your practice and uh, and what that's been like for you all. But before getting started, uh, I just wanted to give each of you the opportunity to share a little bit more with the audience if you would like. Gisela, would you like to add anything? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, my name is Gisela Acevedo. I'm an associate at Contreras Law Firm here at a law firm at, in San Diego, California. And as you mentioned, I'm Central American. Both of my parents are from El Salvador and I'm the first, and I believe the only attorney in my family. Oh, amazing. Yes, we love shouting out first-gen students and professionals on the podcast. 
<laughs> Anna, is there anything you'd like to share before we kind of get started? Yes, uh, this is Anna Encinius, and thank you for having me as well. I work with Gisela Contreras Law Firm, which is in downtown San Diego. And my mom is from Guatemala, and I'm excited to do this. Great. What was the moment, Gisela, we can go back to you. What was the moment that you knew that you wanted to go to law school? It's actually a funny story. I mean, I think since I was a little girl, I people would always tell me that I was really good at coming up with arguments. I remember in <laughs> school, there was an argument, does Santa Claus exist and why? And so I was on the position that Santa Claus didn't exist because there was no evidence that he did. And so people always kind of encouraged me, like, maybe you should be a lawyer. <laughs> it was always something I considered. I was like, oh, maybe, you know, and yeah, and it was just kind of a joke. Tell me what position we're taking and I'll come up with an argument. And in college, I actually started pre-med and slowly but surely I started kind of learning, deciding uh, through the to the legal side. I took my first internship at Casa Cornelia here in San Diego, which is a pro bono immigration firm. And oh, nice. kinda, that's kind of what led me to the legal field. Where I just started seeing that the satisfaction I received from that side of, of, of a career was more of what I needed and was more passionate about. What made you switch from immigration to family law? It's quite two different practices of law. Yes. Well, I, I actually, in law school... One of our requirements was to take an um, internship, and I, I did take an internship in a family law office. And I started seeing that, as although immigration law is important and it's dear to my heart because both of my parents were immigrants, I just felt like it was a niche that I fit more in, and I mm-hmm. be able to use my skills a little bit more in that side of the law. Anna, do you know or remember clearly when you knew that you wanted to go to law school? Yes, I was actually around eight years old. My mom took my sister and I to a conference called Adelante Mujer Latina, which is... Oh, wow. Yeah, so, and I remember it was one of the speakers was an immigration attorney, and I was just so amazed with her. I just, her entire speech and the way she would help people... So I knew I wanted to be an attorney. I just wasn't sure if it would be immigration. And then I really wanted to be a family law attorney because my parents divorced when I was really young, when I was two, Mm -hmm. and I clearly don't remember it. But I remember my mom, one thing she always said is that when it was really difficult for her to find an attorney, a bilingual attorney and a Mm -hmm. woman. So I knew that I wanted to help women, especially bilingual, and I know Spanish, uh, so that's why I was I knew I wanted to do family law and I, I was actually a little bit indecisive with family law or immigration preferably both but mm-hmm. I really honestly I really enjoy doing family law that's great I guess going back to Gisela what advice would you give your pre-law self I think the biggest advice I would give myself is to be informed maybe a little bit more I think the financial aspect of Law school is something that most mm-hmm. most of us don't really look into. You know, it's like it's mm-hmm. a dream I'm gonna take, and you know, just 
what what do the loans look like if you don't have the financial means to pay for school what does it mean to have student loans what is the interest rate I, mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure you kind of become familiar with the dilemma that most of us young professionals are facing with student loans are you going to be okay with a long term payment of of a loan mm-hmm. up in the hundred what can you afford? For me, the answer to that is luckily is yes. I, I love my career so much that I, I don't mind the payment. It's it's I've managed to budget, but I think that I would have become a little bit more informed about the financial aspect of what does it mean to get a law career in, in the United States? Yeah, I think that that's really important advice, especially right now as we're entering into a recession that could exactly. be worse than 2008 and potentially worse than the Great Depression itself. And I also really encourage people to do the research before they enroll in law school in terms of looking at what percentage of students who have a job one year after graduating. It's a super statistic because a lot of lower tier schools will accept people who have lower LSAT scores. But then it's kind of, it's a bit of a trap because law school is such an investment and you only want to make it if you have a job guarantee, I think. Yeah. And if you And I I agree with everything you said for sure. I've had actually people ask me, hey, like I'm kind of done with my master's and, you know, I really like reading and I like it. I'm just kind of bored. You know, do you recommend it? My answer to that is always we definitely need more women, kind of like Anna said, we need more Latinas in our field. But my biggest recommendation is sure you are 110% sure that this is the career you want to go into because the loans, I mean, it's something that I've managed to work into my budget, but if it wasn't something I felt passionate about, it it wouldn't have been worth it at all. It's not something that, in my opinion, you do if you're bored, unless you have the financial means. Yeah, I think that's really important because prior generations did approach and talk about law school as a great thing to do if you're not quite sure what to do next in your career. And people say that there's skills that you graduate with that you can apply everywhere. And I think that it's true to a certain extent that law school improves your research and writing skills, but there's other ways to improve those things. And I think it's really important for people to actually understand what the practice of law looks like. Because what we see on TV and popular culture is vastly different from what the everyday practice of law is like. And I, I think a lot of people enter into it thinking that it's going to be one one thing and it's actually quite different. Exactly. So, yeah. Anna, what about you? What advice would you give your pre-law self? I absolutely agree with Gisela, definitely regarding the the money and the loan, because it's so easy getting a loan. And then now that we have to repay yeah. it, luckily, I, you know, I am employed and I was employed quickly after graduate, graduating and um, I'm still currently employed, which is great. So I'm able to make those payments. But aside from that, one of the biggest things is actually learning how to study and actually ask for help. Because I've always done well in school. I've done really good in school since I was little. And then once I went to college, I went to UCSD. I I studied, but I didn't study as much. I did. I joined a sorority, and I was also involved in other activities. And I did fine in school. 
but I honestly, I don't think I ever knew really how to study until I went to law school. Mm-hmm. It was so different. Mm-hmm. And the types of habits I had in college, I could not do in in law school. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because it was a lot of reading. And, um, and I know they say it a lot in in movies and TV, but it, you know, it is, it's a huge investment and it's not only am I taking out these loans, but I have to really apply myself to study and do good to get good grades and hopefully, you know, get a job after it. So absolutely is, you know, really learn how to study. Yeah. Cause it was difficult yeah. the first year. Absolutely. It was really, really difficult. And I, but now was the first time I ever felt, honestly, I felt dumb. And I even questioned myself and thinking, should I even be here? Maybe I'm I'm not cut out for this. It it was really difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's just a particular kind of thinking and framework that law school is. So it's very alienating when you first get there. And I think professors make this show of, you know, asking everyone to, to debate every side of an argument and aren't clear about the holding so you have to figure those things out by yourself and I I definitely think that getting a head start on how to study smart is really important I people recommended the book getting to maybe to me as something to read and I definitely recommend that to pre-law folks because like you said it can be so disorienting to be in a law school classroom and to to not get how to find the holding it's because it's just a very particular way of thinking and analyzing and if you haven't been exposed to it before then it's going to be a learning curve and getting to maybe talks about the the framework and I think is really helpful yeah absolutely what advice would you give your 3L self? Let's see. If I could go back to my 3L year, I think I would just, I think, let me think about that one. <laughs> That's kind of hard. Let me think back. I think my, my, for me, my 3L year was the best year. I had so much fun. And by then I had such a tight knit community. I think that now thinking back, what I would tell myself is, to really not be shy to ask for, to continue to ask for help. I remember gearing up three year, three L year to okay, I'm gonna be taking the bar. What 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 is this gonna look like? Now looking back, I I, I mean obviously I know exactly what that looked like. I was a three L living off of loans, getting ready to take the bar, no job. My family, my dad's a truck driver. And my mom at the time was a homemaker, so we didn't have much money. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just getting ready to ask for help. I wish I would have asked for help sooner. I actually had to take the bar twice. I took it once. I didn't pass. And the reality of it was that I didn't have money. I didn't have, I hadn't taken out a bar loan. Mm. I was just like, oh, I don't want to be in debt. Wow, I, that's really hard. Yeah, I, I was just like, I don't want to be in more debt. And 
I was like, I'll be fine. I'm fine. The truth was I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't have enough money to eat. Wow. Like things like that. Wow. Um, I was worrying instead of focusing my time on studying, I was focusing on how am I going to make my car payment? Of course. Yeah. Or how am I going to eat? Yeah. Where am I going to live? How am I going to cover rent? I, I, there was some books, supplements that I didn't buy the first time around that the second time around I 100% invested in mm-hmm. because I just started cashing in on favors. I knew my family was going to ask for favors. I knew everyone would say, okay, you're an attorney. I need help with this and I need help with that. And so I, I started looking at it as, okay, this is, this is an investment. And I know all these people, my aunts, uncles, parents, cousins are going to look for me. And later, one time I am an attorney. So I started asking my cousin, hey, like, look, my birthday's coming up. Instead of getting me a gift, can you buy this supplement for me? Mm-hmm. Just I asked my aunt for a personal loan instead of a loan that would result in interest. I asked my aunt for a personal loan that I would pay back within the first year of my career once I became employed, mm-hmm. which covered my car payment, enough to cover my car payment while I was studying the second time around. Honestly, and I mean, it's something that I'm, you know, at first I was ashamed of. I applied for food stamps. It At the time, it was very heart-wrenching and it was kind of just, I felt disappointed in myself because it's like, here mm. I am, someone who's always done well. And I, I had to apply for state benefits to kind of get through to that point, to get through studying the second time around. And I mean, I, I, I passed the second time around because I, right. I, I, I think the best, one of the best quotes I have ever been told was shy can be expensive. I love that because it makes so much sense to me. If I hadn't been shy the first time around, I, I you know, maybe my results would have been different. Yeah. And I think that the reason why you felt shame about applying for food stamps is that the U.S. has this really nasty capitalist, individualist culture that tells us that we need to pull each individual needs to pull themselves up from their bootstraps and are right. only worth what they're able to produce because it's completely normal to we all need help so it's completely normal to apply for government benefits that's what the government is theoretically there to do yeah i mean yeah totally there's just such a negative connotation with you know asking for government aid and it's like oh those people are lazy but I mean, the truth was I, I was I was actually working a little bit, but I, mm-hmm. if I focused on working, I couldn't I wouldn't be able to focus on on studying full time and right. it would have been just a cycle. I think, you know, my, my best advice to myself back in 3L year is gear up for the help, even if at the moment it's embarrassing because it will all be worth it. Yeah, and just so folks are aware, actually, the bar loan is something that's kind of built into the legal profession as an expectation. Studying for the bar is a full-time, three-month thing, at least. And it's it's something that you have to dedicate yourself to full-time. Sometimes, you know, even studying even more than eight hours a day. Yes. And so it's just not something that you can do, even if you're, like, working part-time. Like, that's still really difficult and that's why banks have an actual subcategory of loan that is the bar loan because up to like ten thousand dollars because 
that's the reality of studying for the bar. It's something that needs to be full time. And I, I think that it's an example of, of elitism within the profession and all the the financial barriers that exist that make it really hard for poor folks, people of color who are disproportionately poor to enter into the profession. Absolutely. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, I actually did take do take the bar study loan. I went to law school in Michigan, so when I moved back home, I, I you know, it's not like I had a job. I, I was doing my internship, and then I still had to study for the bar, so I moved in with my mom, and I, I had my car payments, my own expenses, and I would feel bad that not only, you know, is she going to pay for my for groceries, utilities, and everything, but now pay for all my expenses, so... Right. I actually did take out a bar student loan. And the sad part is, and I've talked to Hisela about it, is I actually, because of the high interest, I actually owe more now than what I took out. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. And it, because it was a private loan and it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it is what it is right now. And that it sucks. And that's uh, exactly what she said. It's like a full-time job. And I remember I would wake up every morning and luckily I, unlike Hisela, I, you know, I did have because I lived at home, Hisela, you know, decided to live on her own, which I completely, I, I don't know how she did it. <laughs> and I wish I had that independence like she did, but I, I didn't. And I, you know, my mom, she, she would cook for me and I would study all day. I remember I'd wake up early, start at 8.30 and end at 5. Sometimes I would go until 7 or 8 p.m. And I remember I would be so delirious. I couldn't even talk correctly yeah right yeah it, it was hard and yeah and now I like I said I owe more than I even took out that's very wild Anna what advice would you give your 3L self would it also be along these financial guidelines that you would say read the fine print in the interest of your loans or, or yeah what would, what would you what advice would you give your 3L self with that actually mine's a little bit different I I wish I would have studied abroad. They actually did provide a program at law school to study abroad where some of the students went to Australia. And I never studied abroad when I was in college, which I I regret then. But I also regret that. I I should have done that. But I was so focused on I have to – I had my plan. And I felt Mm -hmm. like maybe if I studied abroad that I I wouldn't finish certain credits and I wouldn't be able to graduate – but that's not true. And I shouldn't have let my fear get to me because some of the classmates that I started law school, they actually did study abroad and still graduated at the same time I did. So that that's an experience that I felt I should have done and I shouldn't have been so scared. Yeah, I've heard that those study abroad experiences are really fun, particularly compared to the rigor of an American law school. I'm not, I'm painting in very broad brush strokes here but I've heard that it was that studying abroad was an amazing experience because you got to have that comparative analysis of how one country's legal system works versus the U.S.'s and it gives you that perspective but also I think especially because in the European countries the way that their college and professionalization is structured people are getting their professional degrees earlier on in life and so yeah I don't know I I just heard that it was really fulfilling and also kind of a nice break from tort law and property law reading (laughs) yeah I heard it it was fun I think they went yeah they went to Australia and 
So, it, it, you know, I've never been and that would have been nice <laughs> and to learn about, you know, yeah. culture, especially uh, law students over there. Yeah, yeah. I actually studied abroad and I wish Anna you would have. It's for sure something that I look back and I'm like so thankful I did it because I mean Anna and I talk about it all the time. It's like we're licensed in California and it's it's really hard for us just to pick up and go and say, Okay, well I'm gonna go live in another country. It does with our career yeah. it doesn't really work that way. I went to Chile, it was programming at Cal Western School of Law and it was amazing. I mean, and it's it's funny how things work out. I ended up having a client from Chile and it, it kind of me studying abroad kind of helped me with that client kind of at least at the very mm-hmm. minimum understand his culture mm-hmm. where, you know, he was coming from. And it's just fun to kind of, you know, now that we're established, when are we able going to be be able to live in another country for months again? Yeah, especially as you say, you're pretty stuck to one state once you're barred in that state, just because the bar is such a bitch to take. So it's not a lighthearted move to make if you decide to leave the state. Yeah. Kisela, what advice would you give yourself as a first-year attorney? You both have been practicing for six years, right? Yes. Yes. That one's a little... I think I would say it gets better. Oh, yes. <laughs> it gets better and you you aren't supposed to know everything off the bat. One thing mm-hmm. I learned that, unfortunately, law school does not teach you how to be an attorney. It doesn't teach you how to deal with difficult clients. I mean, some of the classes like I, in, at Cal Western, we had steps. So we did have some minimal client control day, days of classes where it's like, okay, how do you control a client? But I mean, it becomes real when you're an attorney. I mean, the, you don't, nobody tells you how difficult it is. And you're kind of just sitting there and, and you're just, I remember think now looking back, I remember thinking, wait, wait, why, why am I struggling with, with this? Why is this so much harder? And the truth was, is that you know, lots of doesn't teach you that clients are going to be difficult, and judges are not always the nicest. I, I remember right. crying in the parking lot sometimes after a court, after a judge chews you out. Truth is, judges are mean sometimes. Yeah, and it's just yeah. I remember look just feeling like weak. You know, it's like man, like mm-hmm. why do I feel this way? I should. I am strong, and I, I this is what I signed up for. So if I if I can go back and give myself some ad- advices, it gets easier. Honestly, now I mean Anna and I talk about it. How is you do get up to a point in your career when you're like, yep, I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And things come your way, and you're able to handle it, and you start developing a skill to deal with clients and opposing counsels. It's, it's, I always joke with my husband and now that we're quarantined, he's kind of, he's in his office and I'm in mine, but he's like, mm-hmm. so like, is that what you do all day? You fight with people all day. I'm like, pretty much. I mean, I'm <laughs> with opposing counsel and sometimes my clients are fighting with me and sometimes it's the judge now that we're appearing. And so it's, it gets better. You learn how to handle things. You Your skills become stronger. And, you know, if I could go back, I would just say, you know what, Gisela, sitting there in a the parking lot crying, it gets better and and you become stronger for it. That's amazing. I think that's that's really 
great advice. For dealing with the judges, do you think that you just developed a tougher skin or what techniques or tips would you want to impart onto younger attorneys who are in their first year and who are trying to emotionally deal with the, their first time being yelled at by a judge? Yeah, Anna knows, right? Anna, I've kind of had my fair share of chewing, being chewed out by judges. Yes, we both have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me, honestly, yes, you develop thicker skin. And sometimes you have no choice but to have thick skin because you're being chewed out by a judge and then your client's right next to you. And it's like as much as you want to cry or just be really angry, you have to be composed because that's what you've been hired for. You're hired to represent your client and to deal with whatever comes. And that's what an attorney is. You represent your client. Sometimes the judge is angry at your client because they did X, Y, and Z. But because you represent the client, it's kind of like you, you know, you're taking whatever comes on behalf of your client, right? So it it has been thicker skin. One. Two is knowing who your judge is. Who is your judge? What is their background? That's crucial in all of our places. And I don't know who the judge is or it's a new judge, but Anna has been in front of the judge. One of the things we we do in our office, not just with Anna, but the other attorneys, it's like, hey, have you been in front of this judge? Who are they? What? If I represent dad versus mom, how do they sway? If you know Mm -hmm. your judge, you know how to tailor your arguments Mm -hmm. and you know what to tell your client, what to say, what not to say. We have one particular judge in family law who we know they like to split the baby. When it comes to custody, they like they like to see clients getting along. If you go into court and you seem like the unreasonable parent or you seem like the parent who doesn't want to share the custody, then you're not going to get good orders. So thicker skin, knowing who your judges are, have been a, crucial in kind of dealing with judges and in a better fashion yeah Anna what what advice would you give yourself as a first-year attorney definitely be patient (laughs) and yes it it does get better and another thing is be more confident because exactly what Hisela said it's really hard in the beginning because law school doesn't prepare you for this Mm -hmm. you're dealing with real life and real life issues and especially in family law there's a lot of emotions going on with our clients so if a client feels that you don't have their back 100% and there are times that clients are wrong but that kind of goes with client control is they can eat you alive and I remember you know being so you know new and not knowing and a client would ask me a question if I didn't know and they could see it in my face then they wouldn't even want to work with me. They would say, uh, it seems like you don't know what you're doing. You're too new. I want another, I want an experienced attorney is what I would get a lot, mm-hmm. you know, or they would ask me, how long have you been doing this? And it sounds a bit sexist. Yeah, it, it's, sure. it sucks. It, and even women, women would tell me, like, how long have yeah. you been doing this? And honestly, sometimes I feel like the women were, were meaner than men. Mm. And then also it's difficult with when I started working the firm I worked at, it was new. So I was only associate and, and I was just scared that I would mess something up. And I know I annoyed my bosses by asking them something, every little thing. And, and that's something that I should have also been more confident in, in knowing what, what I needed to do and not also rely on them so much. 
So I, I definitely, one thing is be more confident, but, but also like Casella said is things get better. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Compared to my first year to now, it's way different. I, I know exactly, you know, I have client control. I know how to speak with other attorneys and even be in front of certain judges and not be so scared. And there are times that judges make mistakes. So, you know, right. in my first year, I would never call them out. I would, even right. if it's wrong, yeah. I would be like, oh, okay, and I'll take those orders. Now, oh, it's, wow. you know, now I'd be like, oh, you know, with all due respect, Your Honor, I don't agree mm-hmm. Y and Z. And there are times where judges say, oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. I made a mistake. And let me correct that because that little mistake can cost our clients hundreds of thousands of dollars at times. Mm-hmm. So it, it's in their clients, they trust us to know to represent them. And sometimes the judges, they do make mistakes. And I think that is something that as an attorney, when you're representing your client is to call them out on the mistakes. And sometimes judges won't listen to you. And they'll just say, I made my order, I don't want to hear it. And, and like Asala said, sometimes you just have to take it. And it is what it is. But it's definitely the confidence and kind of things do get better. The more years you practice, the more you learn, you think you learn quickly learn how to think on your feet because things don't always go your way. And Anna's really good at that, by the way. I've been in court sitting there and, and I'm like, oh, oh my God, Anna really just called the judge out. Oh my God, like <laughs> impressive because the judge is like, excuse me? Mm-hmm. And I remember that one time it's, I think Anna was just like, with all due respect, Your Honor, what's your legal, pre- you know, what's your legal grounds for making mm-hmm. that order? And I was just so impressed with her because it's, it is really hard to stand up to this person in the robe up there. But if you don't do it, one, like she said, your client can be facing a lot of repercussions, either monetary or it's people's life. And two, you cover yourself because things are on the records. Maybe even after you object to it, the judge will still rule that certain way. But at right. least put on the record, like, hey, look, I objected to it. I did my job. And you can you avoid legal repercussions for yourself and for your firm, basically. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So for both of you, what type of cases do you cover in family law practice generally and in your own specific practice? Well, Anna and I do a lot of the uh, similar areas, but there's some areas that she does that I don't, that I don't typically do. And some areas that I do and that she doesn't really do. So obviously we do dissolution of marriage, which is divorce. We deal with paternity cases, having to do with people who want to get orders for custody and Mm -hmm. child support or one or the other, but are not married. Sometimes we help with just mediation, basically, Mm -hmm. just helping people come to an agreement. One area that I I love and it's very dear to my heart is the surrogacy area. Mm-hmm. So it's where individuals who want to start a family and have tried every other means or find that starting a family through surrogacy is the route for them. So mm-hmm. we I do things as as they come. For example, we do agreements, surrogacy agreements, either representing the surrogate or representing the parents who want to have a baby through a surrogate. So it's the contract that they make when deciding how much to pay and exactly. I, don't know, I don't know what else is delineated in those. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes we're just hired for that. Other times we're hired for the agreement and the part that comes after, which is the part of filing the the 
petition with the court and getting a surrogacy judgment with the court. I also do... It's a surrogacy judgment. why, Why would a judge intervene in that? So in San Diego, it's a little bit different. I found that in San Diego, it's a little bit different than other counties. Most counties, it looks like, don't even have a hearing. It's just we have a judgment. If there's an agreement between the parties and everything goes smooth with paperwork, you never go in front of a judge. But in San Diego, it's different. Here in San Diego, they are way thorough with judgments. They have the surrogate and the parents appear in front of the judge and they triple check that the surrogate has, you know, was represented, that the agreement is up to code. And they decide if they're going to grant the right for the parents to have a judgment or a decree that says that they're the legal parents of the baby that's born from a surrogate. Oh, okay, I see. Basically, the judgment is a piece of paper that they take to the hospital that gives them the right to be there for the delivery and gives them the right for their names to be on the on the birth certificate, things like that, rights that they wouldn't get uh, otherwise. Mm, okay, I see. And yes, like, like Casella said, we both do the same cases as in divorce, custody, support. We also do domestic violence. And what I, since Sala focuses on surrogacy, I focus on prenuptial agreements mm-hmm. and postnuptial agreements, which are similar to prenuptial, but it's done after parties get married. Mm-hmm. And I've also done cohabitation agreements. So people that don't want to get married, but they want a type of agreement between them, similar to a contract. What is a family law specialist? Family law specialist is, so it's funny because people always ask us, at least me, they're like, oh, what did you, what do you specialize? Or what did you specialize when you went to law school? And as you know, it's, you graduate with a law degree, you don't graduate in a law degree of immigration. Right. Yeah. I usually just tell people immigration because that's mostly what I did. I don't really bother explaining like, oh, there's no, you don't really specialize. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably the area that you're more focused on or that you intend to go into. But to legally say that you are a specialist in an area, you have to take this exam, which Anna and I both took. And actually, we just passed it. We, We just got word in March that we both passed. And some of the requirements is is five years before applying for this application and taking the test that you you spent the majority or a certain percentage of your practice in this specific area. In our case, it would be family law that we've done. And it's just very specific that we've done trials and letting our clients know that it's not just something that we do. We've, we were actually specialized in this specific area. If you're going to look for an attorney who is going to represent you in a custody case or a restraining order. And these are, they have serious repercussions. You're dealing with people's lives, children, sharing of children. In my opinion, it's always best to get someone who specializes in in it. So is it about giving yourself more credibility to clients, knowing that you focus on that area? Or are there things that you're able to do with the specialty that a regular lawyer would not? And I, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I can answer that. So it's, it, yes, it does help with saying, yes, I'm, it's not necessarily more qualified, but in a way, yes, because to take the, the exam, 
we we studied and it's this was a lot of hours it's pretty much they call it a mini bar it's like a little it's a mini bar only focusing on family law so not only do we go into new law that has been enacted but also old law and current law and once we get the you know past exam we get recommendations from the judges and from other attorneys and finish the application and it gets approved and we're able to tell the, the our clients yes we specialize in this and also in san diego i'm not sure about other counties but i know in san diego it's a very small pool of attorneys that are actually our specialists in family law so one i did a yes for for a little bit you know more validation for the clients but also for myself because i knew i wanted to do mm -hmm. family law especially because i'm very passionate about it and i'm really happy that i chose this this specific field. We're in front of judges and we mentioned things that we've learned. I don't know, something like, Your Honor, I, I want to take judicial notice of job postings. And they're looking at you like, wait, I don't know if you could do that. And you're like, no, this is the case law. Because one of the things that we're having issues with in San Diego, at least, is that they're putting judges on the bench that don't have prior experience in family law. Mm -hmm. So as an attorney, it's really, really important for you to not only just know family law but know it well because then you 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 end up mentioning things that the judges don't even know or are familiar with so it really does help just to become a better attorney yeah that makes sense So it's true that you there's two women partners who are the partners in your firm? Yes. So there's the Dolores Contreras is, I believe, the majority shareholder. And then it's Elise Butler. And I've known Dolores Contreras for a long time. She's a family friend. Has working under two women partners impacted your growth in the legal profession? And if it has, how has it done so? I believe it has. Absolutely. And being two women, I feel that they have helped me with how to not only be an attorney, but be a woman and be young, because they're both in their, their, they were in their early 30s when they opened up the firm. And I remember when I passed the bar, I was, I was 26. So one of the things I remember them telling you, telling me is saying, it, it's still a man's world. It is. Realistically, mm -hmm. there's, you know, most attorneys in family law attorney are men. And a yeah. lot of them are older white men. They're one thing they're, they told me that they're, you're, they're going to treat you like, oh, you know, little girl trying to play attorney. And that is absolutely mm -hmm. what I got. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I still get that. And that you know, with experience, you don't let that happen. Right. It's like, no, I. You so know, how I, do you shut that down? So just definitely <laughs> with my confidence, the way I talk to them or I tell them they think they can talk over me. I don't let them. I, I remember there was one time in court. I was speaking and the other attorney was a male, older attorney, and he just interrupted me and started talking. And I put my hand up and I said, excuse me, I'm still talking. Do not interrupt me. And he looked at me, was completely surprised and was like, oh, I'm sorry. And mm -hmm. sometimes, which is nice, is judges do, do 
catch that and we'll won't allow the other person to interrupt but other judges won't do anything so I just feel right. like you have to stand your ground in front of your client and it's not that I'm putting it up a show because to be honest I'm the type of person I, I think it's really important to be nice to everyone too mm-hmm. because it's your colleagues your reality it's you know opposing counsel sometimes when they look at you like I said not only you're a woman but you are young mm-hmm. and they'll treat you differently and that's one thing that my my boss has taught me. He said, do not let anyone walk all over you. Absolutely let them, you know, tell them no. And also with, unfortunately, it does happen with other women too. When mm-hmm. they're older, they look at you, oh, you're inexperienced. Let me tell you how things are. And it's like, no, you don't need to tell me how to do my <laughs> job. I know how to do my job. You don't need to tell me. And another thing too, which is great about Dolores is she's Latina. Oh, yeah, that's really great. Yeah, so absolutely. And my Spanish has absolutely improved clients. So I think it is a huge benefit working with, you know, two women, something close to my age, as well as similar backgrounds. That's really great. What about you, Gisela? Absolutely. I mean, it's been life changing, honestly. And I don't say that as an exaggeration. I think for me, I used to work at another firm. And it was fine and everything. But I was the youngest attorney there. And and attorney, male attorneys, or there was just, there's definitely a disconnect when you work with others who either are not, there's no other women, or they don't speak the same languages as you do, or are way older. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like to, and Dolores are young, and, but, you know, they're extremely smart. And mm-hmm. Dolores is actually a mom of twins. And so that has a very kid friendly workplace. Yeah. I mean, and and it's, it's, it's been amazing seeing her balance being a mother and then also running this law firm Mm -hmm. and her coming into the office looking amazing. And you're just, I, I I grew up with people. Okay. Like you, you either choose a family or have a career, like you either stay at home or you choose your job. And I never really wanted kids before that, you know, watching Dolores be a mom and be able to do it. That's kind of incredible. And and she, you know, she's Latina and, and young. And so for me, it's just kind of been like, okay, you know, she's a role model. And working with Elise has also been great because she's mentored me. I, I work with both, but the way our firm works is basically there's always a partner assigned to a case and an associate and for many reasons. I've, I've been able to improve my writing research skills because I've been under their wing for the last couple of years. So that's mm-hmm. definitely just been great to see someone looks like you and, and female and and kind of that kind of relate that they can relate to right they know what you're going through in the profession for sure yeah. you mentioned that you try and be kind to everybody but How do you manage that when you're representing people in some of the most stressful and heartbreaking times in their lives, like getting a divorce, needing to decide custody, or you were talking about domestic violence, and I'm not quite sure what remedies you seek for victims of domestic violence, but that's also an incredibly difficult and heartbreaking thing, and I think it's a type of practice that particularly lends itself to people being petty, so... How do you still manage that? Absolutely. People, especially, yes, in the divorce and restraining orders is really difficult when there's definitely abuse where it's 
it's absolutely apparent and there's really no reason to even try to settle when there's abuse. And luckily, you know, not only with domestic violence can you get a restraining order, but within the restraining order, you can get custody orders, you can get support orders, which is the client. And what I mean is be nice as in, especially dealing with the other side when they're not represented is really difficult because mm-hmm. they already look at you, you're the enemy, I'm not talking to you. Yeah, and there's a power imbalance because you know the law and they don't. It, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I always try to tell them, I say, look, it's, yeah, I, of course I represent my client. And I always tell them it's better for you to speak to an attorney and everything and, you know, I can't give you legal advice. But in the end, it's who would you rather make a decision, the two of you? or someone who's a complete stranger, a judge. Because a judge is just like like Hisela said earlier, sometimes judges are gonna say, I'm gonna split the baby. Yeah, you say this, you say that, I'm just gonna meet you in the middle. Mm-hmm. And no one really wins. And it's not only did you spend thousands of dollars on attorney fees, wasted a bunch of time, and neither one of you are, are leaving happy. Is I'm a big sorry. part of your practice just is the mediation aspect that you were talking about, encouraging people to actually not go before a judge? I I always push for parties to try to work things out. And to be honest, a lot of times it doesn't, especially in family law with divorce. And people can be very petty. They fight over kitchenware. Every every little thing. You say, oh, salt shakers. And I tell my clients, I'm like, what are we really fighting for? Because do you understand that you're spending more money on me arguing with with your wife or your husband or their attorney? And that's that's not going to help. When it comes to things, it's definitely client control as in, you need to tell them it's not that don't be so petty because I understand the tensions are high, but let go of things. Mm-hmm. And then working with the other side, same thing, whether whether they're represented or not, it's don't go in there with an aggressive attitude. I personally, I don't believe that's going to help anyone. Sometimes it helps with the other attorney if the other side is non, it's someone they need to push. So if I talk to the attorney and have a good relationship with them, I say, okay, you know, let's get these parties settled. Let's mm-hmm. let's try to work together and. Most of the time, you know, when you when you create a good relationship with that attorney, they'll work with their client, which helps your client. And it's always good to have good relationship with other attorneys because now since past exam and, and I need attorney recommendations, I have those attorneys. And there are times where those attorneys will refer clients to me. Mm-hmm. And it also shows the judges and the judges, they see it and they even tell you when I take seminars, they say, we can tell who are the, the attorneys that don't get along and they don't even properly represent their clients because they go into court and litigate based on emotion because they, yeah, they, they, they kind of act as if it's their, it's happening to them and that's not the way to do it. You need to go based off the law because that's what the judge is going to do. And Mm -hmm. I always tell my clients, I'm not trying to be rude, but the judges don't care. They see you as you're just another case because they go through hundreds of cases of the same, of the same people, not same people, but similar facts. The same issue, right? Correct. They see it all the same. They don't care. They don't care that your your husband, your wife cheated or left you with nothing. They they don't care. They really don't. And it's really unfortunate, but it's that's that's what we have to really focus on. And that's why I, I always tell them let's let's approach this differently instead of going in there demanding A, B, and C. But obviously if that doesn't work out, and then sometimes it happens where I try to work with opposing counsel and they're just like, Nope, I'm not gonna talk to you or whatever then we we still go at it and there's no need for me to act nasty especially in front of the judge and the judges see that and there have been times where they'll shut down the other side and they're saying like you're being completely unreasonable to this attorney right yeah I think it's 
incumbent on attorneys to change the culture of the profession because a lot of these the aspect the nastier aspects of the culture are self-inflicted these relationships don't need to be as contentious as they are and on a professional level courteous to each other i think you would bring stress levels down yeah for sure yeah absolutely stay-at-home orders have increased domestic violence. It's kind of a nasty combination of economic depression, people losing their jobs, and also being forced to stay indoors and at home in particular. So I wanted to ask if this is something that you've seen in your practice and how have you helped your clients navigate through these tumultuous times, if that is the case? Yeah, I actually just, we, through the Contrast Law Firm, website we are writing articles and they're published daily and one of the articles that we just that I wrote was on how COVID-19 has affected people and how it's increased domestic violence and it's and, and it's such an unfortunate situation it's a part that unless you're in it you don't really even realize the repercussions that COVID-19 and the stay in place order is having on some people who are in abusive relationships like what you said people are feeling trapped like man like I'm physically ordered to stay in, indoors with this person and a lot of people are unemployed so it, it kind of escalates things they're they're with this person 24 7 and feel like they have no way out you know, and as you can imagine with loss of jobs I mean the stress levels are, are, are higher and the good news one of the things that COVID-19 has resulted in is the closure of the San Diego Superior Court and courts around the world, actually. Right. But one thing we wanted people to know, and I'm glad you asked this question, is that the courts are actually making exceptions from restraining orders because this issue is oh, okay. so delicate and so right. such a huge issue. It's ongoing. It never yeah. stops. Right. Like even though businesses have stopped, even if the courtrooms aren't open to the public, domestic violence is an ongoing issue. Unfortunately, yeah. And as for specifics, I think Anna can talk a little bit more about she actually had a case that she's had to go in in for since the stay in place order has been in place. When you say go in, do you mean into the courthouse or are you doing telephonic hearings because of COVID? It's actually so for restraining, they're not having any restraining order hearings. You can request for a restraining order. And that's the only reason why you can actually go to court right now. And in San Diego County, the way they're doing it is you, you go to court and they don't even let you inside yet. A bailiff comes out and he asked me, what is it you need? I told him I'm filing a restraining order. He asked, are you an attorney? And I said, yes. He said, okay, the do you know where you're going? I said, yes. So then once I go inside, I have to check in with someone else. And once I go to the business office, I can't even enter the business office. I actually have to stay out in the hallway and then wait for a clerk to come out. And they, they ask me if I'm, again, they'll ask you, are you an attorney? I say, yes. And they ask, do you have all the paperwork ready? And I say, yes. And they said, okay, well, there is currently one judge right now who's going reviewing all of the restraining order paperwork as well as 
because like Hisala says, since the courts are closed, all hearings have been postponed. So now right. all of the restraining order hearings that were supposed to go on, they have to do new, new orders. So the judges, it's only one judge per branch is pretty much signing all the new orders. So during that time, they also have to review yours. I waited about maybe two hours. Oh, wow. And, and usually, normally it takes about, honestly, one time it took me eight hours. It takes about four to eight hours. So, it, but it was still a long time. I thought it would have been quicker. And they come out and the clerk gives me the order and they say, well, the judge granted it, granted the restraining order, but didn't grant everything your client wanted. And within the restraining order, my client was asking for a move out order as well. Mm. And so I saw that the judge denied that. And I told the clerk, I'm like, I, I don't understand. Can I speak to the judge? And the, the clerk said, no, the judge, all they're doing is looking at the paperwork, granting it or denying it. Um, you just have to wait until the hearing. I say, but it doesn't make sense why a restraining order would be granted, but a move out order denied. How is my client supposed to live with someone? And, and he just, he shrugged his shoulders, said, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you and walked away. So it, in my opinion, what I believe is that the judge probably because of what's going on with the COVID-19, I don't think that the judge wanted to remove someone from their home, which is unfortunate mm -hmm. for, right. for my client. So, cause it, it doesn't make sense kind of, yeah. just, you know, to kind of defeat the whole purpose of the restraining order. Cause I'm like, what, what is she going to, you know, wave the paper around, say, stay away from me. Right while they're in living in the same house. And I think that's what's really difficult. And it, it, it's really sad because I keep seeing articles about domestic violence and child abuse. And I, mm -hmm. I can't even imagine how these people are stuck in the homes with their abusive partner or you know roommate or whatever. And they probably feel trapped and they can't do anything about it. And luckily the courts are open, but it's realistically, it's, if you live, you know, in, in a small house or apartment, and how are you going to get away to even see an attorney or talk to an attorney to be able to be able to get a restraining order? And if you can't afford an attorney, how are you able to even leave the house to get the restraining order? Yeah, and right. it's, so what options does this client have now? She has to wait for court, and right now they set the court date in early, in like in June. It depends on the judge, though, too, and that's with everything. You know, one judge might rule one way, and then another judge will, like, similar facts and will rule another way. There are, have been cases since COVID that have asked the abusive partner to move out, and they the, that judge, particular judge, didn't care that they were kicking that person out. So it just, it really just depends on the judge, unfortunately. Luckily, we you know, our office at least is just set up where it's like the clients are able to sign everything online and communicate with the right. email if they can't get on the phone. And mm -hmm. we were able to go on their behalf instead of them having to leave their home. So it's been a difficult transition, but there's definitely remedies out there for you know anyone who is in that position. There's, there's legal relief if needed. So how do you all support clients who are in abusive situations like this person who is going to need to live for the next few months with this person who's known to be abusive and what kind of boundaries do you draw as a lawyer and not a therapist or a social worker or the 
problem solver of this person's life. So with my client, I actually do check it, check in on her regularly and can't really go too much into the case. I always tell her, call the police. It doesn't matter if you annoy the police, call them and mm-hmm. let this person know where you got the restraining order against that, that you're serious about this. It's, yeah, there is a restraining order despite there not being a move out order, but there is still a restraining order and that should protect you. And luckily nothing has gone on nothing there hasn't been a violation since and I think I I, because I believe a lot of people are afraid to call the police especially because they hear in the news saying oh the police isn't being responsive because anything like call me I will talk to them I know Hisela's in the past has actually talked to the police and told them like no you need to follow the order you need to do this yeah and yeah if Hisela wants to go into that yeah yeah in that particular case um I had a client who was undocumented and it's they were, you know, the other person was in direct violation of the order. And I kept telling my client, you have to call police. And I, I just, I just sensed it. And so I just told the client, you know what, I, I had never actually done this. I was just like, put the, put the police on the phone right now. And I'll talk to them. And I, I, most of the times the police will be like, you know, I'm not going to talk to your attorney. But in this case, for whatever reason, the, the police took the call and he was like, oh, okay. And sometimes it takes a lawyer saying exactly what the order says. <laughs> and reiterating the order and kind of setting some type of tone. And mm-hmm. my client never got anything about his status and it never even came up. And he ended up getting his way because the order was very specific. And the cop thanked me and was like, okay. And the client was like, thank you so much. I, I'm sure you you can understand why certain people are afraid to call the police. But little things that we do here and there to kind of support our clients through these moments. Yeah. So how, how do you navigate giving that advice though because we do know that police are disproportionately known to kill people of color and to also have collaborations with ICE and Border Patrol. So how do you navigate that and what at what support systems do your clients have that don't involve the police or is that currently really the only mechanism to enforce a restraining order or to create the effect of a restraining order? So yes, for the restraining order, if there's a violation to call the police, because once the judge makes the orders, especially with restraining orders, once they grant the, a, t- a permanent restraining order, there are no pending hearings unless there's custody. But most of the time, once they do the permanent, it's kind of that's it. So there's no reason to go back to court. There is a lot of, in reality, yes, this, there isn't trust anymore in the police because of the immigration status for people of color. They can also call me. Unfortunately, we're not available on weekends or after hours. But I, if, if things get really bad and we do need to go to court and if, they don't feel comfortable. I always tell them stay at a friend, stay at a family's and we can reconvene if necessary and go to court. For example, if there's a custody issue and the police isn't doing anything, because there are times where yes, they'll call the police and the the police will just say, well, can't make them follow the court order. You have to go to court. So it leaves my client with, well, well, then what do I do? And with that, we can go in ex parte, which is an emergency hearing. And for mm-hmm. example, and say a mom is not allowed my client to see the child. And it, this is his fifth time. It's been over a month and he's called the police X amount of times and the police isn't doing anything about it. So that's where a mom will go to court and the judge will tell her, you need to let, you need to follow the court order or we'll set another hearing for modification. 
And if you continue violating the court order, it could lead to a change in custody. So there are different remedies or, you know, my client could request some contempt. So there's different things. But unfortunately, with when you go to the, the route with court, there is a little bit more of a delay because things don't go as quickly as you'd want them to because it's so impacted. Sometimes shooting an email to opposing counsel, like, hey, your client needs to cut it out right now or we're going to go to court ex party tomorrow does the trick. So that's a, that's a very low cost way to kind of get the other side to comply. Yes, mm-hmm. that is true. For the root causes of domestic violence, which I think is toxic masculinity and patriarchy, what what can be done that is less reactive and more going to the root of that problem? I mean, for sure that's part of it, but we've actually seen abuse on both ends, female against female, male to female, male against male. It's what we call the cycle of abuse and it's, it's yeah, just... No, not coming from the victim's perspective, but more of just how do we stop people from becoming abusers? Yeah, and thank you for pointing out. It is true that any gender can be a person who perpetuates violence. Also, there's queer relationships, so obviously right. men can be violent towards each other, women can be violent towards each other, non-binary people can be violent towards each other. But... It is true that, yeah, where does the lack of anger management come from? Because that, to me, is kind of at its core about toxic masculinity. And I know that everyone can have anger problems and everyone can be an abuser, but the femicide is a problem across the world. And what is it? So women die every day at the hands of of a domestic partner? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a that's a difficult question to answer. Unfortunately, a lot of my cases deal with some type of mental illness on the other side. Right, it does not right. use the abuse at all. But I mean, I remember one case where it was, my clients were a little old couple and the abuser was their son who was severely mentally ill. And one of the issues mm-hmm. that I've had discovering within my culture as a Salvadorian is that our culture is still has a negative connotation as to going to therapy, seeking, you know. Yeah, there's a stigma around it. Right. And it's like something that we don't really talk about. It's like, oh, you know, tu primo is kind of off. And nobody, everyone kind of, not everyone, you know, I don't want to generalize, but it's definitely, at least in my family, where, whoa, like, you know, looking back, you know, maybe that person kind of needed mental assistance. And that's just one example where it's like mental illness definitely is part of, you know, abuse. Yeah. That's what I was kind of getting at. It's like, right, because right, I think it's not to excuse the mental illness, but it's to put it in context and yeah. allows us to better understand what the root causes are. Because if that person was had their mental illness in good c- care, then maybe that wouldn't have happened. Or I, I would strongly suspect that that wouldn't have happened. So yeah, or, yeah or thank you for that. Diagnosis, right? Like at, at the age of six versus this 36 year old, nobody has done anything about it. For So from my experience, mental illness has been, in other cases, it's just plain people were either raised that way or they saw their mom or, right. or dad. You Cycle know? of abuse. Exactly. We're like, whoa, this that's really weird. And then you meet their parents and you're like, well, now that makes sense. 
Oh, wow. That's rough. Yeah, agreed. I sometimes, unfortunately, yeah, especially I feel with the Latino culture is they don't believe in therapy or unfortunately the machismo is still there. And, and you see that. And I believe it's difficult for some Latina women because it's a cycle. They see, well, my, my mom went through it and my sister, mm-hmm. well, it's normal for me. You know, my husband will eventually change. And it's, it's sad it, and there's difficult, you know, difficult cases in helping the victim. But also there are times where we do represent the abuser. Hmm. It's not what is like, that like? And with that, okay. it's one thing with being an attorney, and I think it's really important, is you have to be upfront with your client. There, you should not sugarcoat things. So if, if, for example, if your client was arrested for domestic violence, there are pictures of bruises and things. I'm not going to go in there and say, oh, yeah, the judge, we can absolutely change the judge's mind because this didn't happen. It's no, it's more like, what can we do to show that what it's not even we it's what can you do to rehabilitate yourself because one you have to acknowledge the fact that there there is abuse that you did something wrong and two is how can you make how can you improve the situation what can you do not necessarily going to therapy because if if you for example if you're an alcoholic and you need to acknowledge the fact, okay, maybe I am, maybe I have anger issues, maybe I do need to go to anger management and go to therapy and not drink, go to rehab. So it's kind of, what can you do to make yourself a better person to improve you being a father or you being a mother? So I, and I think it's, that's something that sometimes clients don't want to hear, but you need to be realistic with them and tell them like, yeah, I'm not here to be your therapist. I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm your attorney. And I'm going to do what's best for you. But going into court with the attitude, oh, my client didn't do anything, even though there's arrest records and pictures and videos. Oh, my client's innocent. No, you can't do that. Well, yeah, that'd be unethical. And it's just the sad part is no, some some attorneys will go in there and still say, yeah, this happened, but this was a one time thing. You know, I, I just I don't think that's the best approach. I think especially when, yeah, there's evidence. It's kind of what can we do to to show the court that whether, and sometimes it does happen, whether if this was a one-time thing as in show the court that it this is not going to happen again or how are we going to protect the children or even the other spouse. So it, we, we still let them know. We make sure we put it in writing. Hey, by the way, we're, as your attorney is absolute, we'll represent you, but we're not going to lie for you. And like you said, it's unethical. I'm not going to go in there and pretend something isn't true when there's clear evidence. Yeah. And when honestly, you- and judges will call you out on it. They will absolutely call you out in it because I've had <laughs> yeah, it. Where they argue. should. Yeah, I'll argue and the judge will stop me. And he's just like, and he'll go to my client and say, so you're telling me you didn't do A, B and C. So you're telling me she made all of this up. She made all these pictures. All this is a fabrication. That's what you're telling me. <laughs> you know, and there's nothing. It's like you can hire the best attorney in the world. It's like right. when there's evidence, it's just it is what it is. And is it different representing an abuser in terms of feeling more of accountability to helping them heal because I think it's one thing to state in a hearing that you're going to enroll in an anger management program because you know that the judge is going to like that versus actually following up and doing so and taking that seriously. Well, for me, there's a very specific section of the law that says if you are found to have perpetrated abuse, you need to do steps one through 12. For us, I mean, it's our legal obligation to inform the client, look, if you, for example, there's kids involved, 
Now you've been found to have perpetrated abuse. If you ever want to get meaningful time with your kids in the future, you have to take these steps. Our duty is to represent you. We're not your therapist and we're not your mom, but I'm telling you that you have to take these steps if you want a meaningful relationship with your kids in the future. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of that, if our clients are true abusers, these programs actually, we, we can only hope that they benefit. And, and a lot of the times they do benefit. Good. So you see that benefit. Well, yeah, for sure. That's where it's our, uh, our obligation to really put in the work and, and, you know, make sure that the judge sees that, you know, this, this is it. I think those are, are harder, actually, in my opinion, when we have clients who are being accused of, mm. of just so that the other person can get a better custody outcome. So. so can you get into some of the collateral consequences that might attach to such a conviction or such a judgment? So if you are found to have perpetrated abuse either through a restraining order or through you know an evidentiary hearing or a trial and you get a a restraining order granted against you for example the court cannot give you legal custody of your kids and what does that mean legal custody allows you to make medical decisions Mm -hmm. on kids educational decisions on behalf of your kids what religion your kid is going to practice if any and legally the court can't give you equal timeshare with your kid if you are have a restraining order against you mm-hmm. which which is what I'm ta- talking about some people use a restraining order to get a leg up and get more custody that's very nasty it is so nasty and I mean we see it all the time where like Anna said you look at a case and you're like no this happened and other cases you're like this is this this probably did not happen and it get restraining orders when it was it wasn't it shouldn't have been placed so if there's no kids involved and you want spousal support, for example, but you have been found to have committed abuse and a restraining order is against you, the court can take that into consideration, not award you any spousal support. So mm-hmm. it's really important to seek legal counsel when things like that happen because they can have severe repercussions in your right. well-being with relationship with the kids and other stuff. With your family, yeah. Right. And and for and, and adding a little bit to what Hisela said, and that goes for five years. So if you've been found to have committed domestic violence, so, and you, you need it and you haven't done anything within five years, taken the steps and everything, you still cannot have primary custody or even an equal timeshare with um, the other parent. Wow. So it's not that, well, the restraining order was only six months. So after it expires, you'll have full custody. No, it's seriously, you have to prove that. And that's for five years that attaches. Yeah, I could definitely see why it would be more stressful to be representing the person who's accused. Yeah, especially with when there's clear, it does suck because it's really sad that, and I see in both men and women, it's not just, you know, one over the other, that they will absolutely use this. They take advantage of the system and they know how easy it is to get a temporary order. So getting a permanent one, they'll just say anything. And when it comes to that, it's kind of up to the judge where who does he believe more? that's that's what what they what they say who do they believe more when there isn't any evidence there was no arrest or pictures or anything you know it's just he said she said and that's where like Hasala said our skill really has to go in place where we have to weigh the judge saying no the person is lying right well we've been chatting for around an hour and a half and I don't want to take up too much of your time so I wanted to thank you both so much for coming on to the podcast. 
And just wanted to ask if there's anything that you wanted to say that you feel like we haven't covered. I well, I want to thank you for <laughs> for having us. I really enjoyed this. As as you can probably tell, I love family law, and I know Hasella does too. I love what I do, and and I hope. I hope for anyone who's for all the people that are listening that they really either you're a law student or you want to be an attorney or you are an attorney that you not only listen to us but you know have your pretty much do what you what you want to do and mm-hmm. what you love and then as an attorney you take some advice from other people like I do I absolutely take mm-hmm. advice from other attorneys yeah definitely that's how you grow as an attorney is by being mentored by other attorneys yeah absolutely sure, sure. yeah and, and- Thank you so much for having us. This was great. And if there's any other Latinas or Latinos out there listening or Central Americans in kind of feel Woo! there's this imposter syndrome that I'm sure you've heard about where it's kind of feel like there's nobody like me that looks like me. Can I do this shit here? Well, it is true that Latinx people comprise only 2% of the legal profession. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's still very a profession where it's mostly white males and mm-hmm. it's difficult. We do encounter a lot of situations where it's people try to put you down for your race or your, your gender or your age. But if anything like that comes up, you know that you have people surrounding you and that can assist you that have gone through that. And don't be afraid to just piggyback your emotions or your experiences with others. I think that that, that has really helped me. After every hearing, we come back and kind of vent to one another it's like the judge said this or opposing counsel did, did this and just kind of venting to someone other women or other women mm-hmm. who understand has been so therapeutic throughout my career so yes now there is anyone going through a similar situation we're, we're here to support one another yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a great note to end on all right thank you all and bye everyone thank you for listening bye bye